I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State. Even there, you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, October 26th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Governor Phil Bryant now seems unlikely to approve a state takeover of Jackson Public Schools. Find out why. Then, is persuasive marketing pushing Mississippi teens to smoke? Anti-tobacco advocates say students may help their peers fight the urge. We are calling that out and asking others to work with us to call it out because we know that this generation can be the first to end smoking. And if you have ever wondered about the life of an undercover agent, hear a firsthand account from author and agent Tamar El-Nori in our book club segment. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. All eyes are on the governor's office now that the once looming threat of a district takeover seems unlikely. Governor Phil Bryant spoke on alternative actions regarding the Jackson Public School District during the Mississippi Economic Council's annual Hobnob event. The Mississippi Board of Education issued a request to take over JPS last month after finding the district in an extreme state of emergency. An 18-month audit found violations in 24 of 32 standards. Governor Bryant tells MPB's Desiree Frazier he's looking at using outside help rather than a complete takeover to turn around the failing school district. Businessmen and women, we are working with the State Department. I met with the superintendent yesterday. We believe there's a third way rather than just taking over the school system. It's not that I'm I'm opposed to that, but um, I think there's more opportunities uh, for us to help have really transformational change in the public school system. Uh, And so we have the Kellogg's Foundation we're working with, many others I'll name later, but if we all work together, if we get the, uh, the State Department to help us, and, and State Department of Education, and as again, I talked to the superintendent yesterday, she's very understanding and willing to do that. If we bring in some of these national organizations that have helped turn around um, school districts like Battle Creek, Michigan, and Newark, New York, why, why can't we do that? And, and also, I think we can raise uh, a large amount of, uh, of money, uh, we can find the revenue needed to implement the plan uh, and find out exactly what that needs to be and then how we need to go about funding that plan. And rather than using taxpayers' dollars, I think we can do so uh, with uh, a lot of organizations that have stepped up 
Uh, we are in touch, um, uh, again, with different uh, groups around the nation. The Education Commission for the States is one that wants to come in and be a part of it. The Barksdale Reading Institute wants to be a part of it. Uh, I've had so many people come forward and said, let us help with this, uh, that it, uh, it's hard to turn it down. It'd be easy for me just to sign that letter and go on with the rest of my life, but I think there's a better way for us to help the children of Jackson Public Schools. Have you thought about um, your legislative priorities in the upcoming session? We have, uh, and I'll be announcing some of those uh, a little further uh, as we get closer, a little further on in the year, but you'll hear more about public education. You'll hear more about workforce training. It is critical. We have 50,000 job openings just now in the state of Mississippi, so we have jobs looking for people. Uh, and we've got to take care of that as best we can. One of the things I like to see, and you'll hear us talk about it, is um, looking at how we can help fund a two-year um, workforce training program with our community colleges. A lot of uh, blue-collar kids don't have the revenue to go to college, and we need to put them in a workforce training program, and our imprint, uh, uh, apprentice program will be one of the ways we'll help do that. The governor says State Superintendent Kerry Wright is open to the idea Wright spoke at a luncheon this week. When asked about the state's second largest school district, she tells MPB's Desiree Frazier the focus has changed. Realize that we got the law changed for a different focus. We're no longer using a conservator model. The law was changed last year to one of district transformation. And the idea was to put in a superintendent who was instructionally focused to focus on the instructional program while they were clearing up the accreditation violations. The conservator model was just the opposite. You put a conservator in to clear up the accreditation violations, and if you happen to approve instruction, so be it. This is a very different approach. This is one where I'm going to put a superintendent in, their focus is to get student outcomes improved while they're clearing up the accreditation violation. So it's a very different focus. If it is approved by the governor, how long do you anticipate it will take to turn this district around? So in the law, it says that you um, have to be there for a, at least five years where the school can be, a, a district has to be rated C or higher for five consecutive years before you can turn it back over. And then the law is also very prescriptive about how you do that. Thank you very much. We appreciate your time. You're welcome. During the luncheon, Superintendent Wright was asked about her relationship with Governor Bryant. She says they have a good working relationship. I've just always believed in my life um, that you take the high road and that um, everybody's um, entitled um, to their own thoughts. And, uh, but that hasn't stopped uh, my work and that hasn't stopped the work of the department and has not stopped our efforts to build what I think right now is a very good relationship um, with the governor and with the legislature. I mean, I, I can't complain. My ed chairs are amazing. The lieutenant governor has been so supportive. The speaker, um, you know, Senator Burton, I mean, I could go right down the list. I mean, people are just, have been constantly reaching out to say, how can we help? And so um, I welcome the governor's um, partnership um, because I think it makes us stronger if the two of us um, are working together. Republican Representative John Moore of Brandon is chair of the House Education Committee. He tells MPB's Desiree Frazier improving JPS could improve the entire city. Well, at this point in time, there's something needs to be done because we're Forget the school district. What we have to think about is you have 26,000 students in this district that are not receiving an education, or let's say a large percentage of them are not. And if, I think for this, for the salvation of the city of Jackson, in my opinion, if, if the school district in the city of Jackson was a A or a B or even a C district, Jackson would be a bustling city. People would be moving back in. 
two districts in school draw mamas and dads and, and kids, which means it draws their money. And uh, because of the poor condition of the school district over the last many years, uh, there's been an, an escape from the the Jackson school system to surrounding school systems, and we've seen what those economies have done. And I've actually looked at it statewide. And you go into any area in Mississippi that has a a very vibrant, very responsive school system, amazingly, that that area is flourishing, doing well, incomes are rising, student achievement is high, there's optimism in that community. And I think that's one of the, the... key factors within the, the success or failure of JPS, and of course I, I will not, it's kind of like the court, I will not second guess what the governor will do. It's in his hands to make the determination. Yeah, because they have that corrective plan that they had started, but it really hasn't been implemented that long. But it seemed like the superintendent, the interim, was passionate about moving ahead with trying to make that work. Right. In a situation of this enormity, there's going to have to be some radical decisions made. There's going to have to be some massive budget cutting that does not affect the classroom. See, the money has, has to be focused totally into the teachers, for teachers' assets, if you will, and teachers' equipment, teacher training, and then control of the local school. And so there's going to have to be some radical management changes made, you know, and I would hope that the superintendent that's the current superintendent of Jackson would have the ability to do that, but evidently the ones that have looked at it internally and the evidence doesn't show that that's fact. Well, Representative John Moore, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us. You're very welcome. The governor previously indicated he would issue a response to the Board of Education's resolution on October 19th. There is no word on when he will issue his formal response. In other news, Canadian companies are looking to strengthen business ties in Mississippi. Nadia Theodore is Canada's Consul General to the U.S. Southeast. She spoke with MPB's Desiree Frazier during the Mississippi Economic Council's Hobnob event. She says she hopes to bring more business to the state. I am here to develop and to strengthen our trade ties with Canada and Mississippi and the other five states I represent. For example, Canada is Mississippi's number one international customer, which a lot of people don't, re- don't realize. So we have a very strong trade relationship. The trade and investment relationship that Canada has with Mississippi is responsible for over 65,000 jobs here in Mississippi. Now tell us a little bit about the Mississippi-Canada connection. What are what are the industries and that type of thing? Absolutely. So, you know, number one for the Canada-Mississippi relationship is manufacturing. So Mississippi exports a lot of manufactured products to Canada. It's not just a purely export relationship. We build a lot of things together. So, for example, Caterpillar, big company here in Mississippi, and what, we, what I actually learned today through networking and speaking to people is that a lot of the products that Caterpillar, Caterpillar builds, a lot of the inputs come from Canada, they're assembled here in Mississippi, and then they're exported to Canada for use. So that's one big example of a Canadian-Mississippi connection. What do you want to come out of your visit? What I hope to do over the next several weeks to make connections this first time that I'm here, to make sure that people know that I'm here, that even though I'm based in Atlanta, 
that I represent Canada in Mississippi as well, that I plan to be here often, and that I want to work with them to grow the Canada-Mississippi trade and economic relationship. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Coming up, is persuasive marketing pushing Mississippi teens to smoke? Anti-tobacco advocates say students may help their peers fight the urge. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org. Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Join me each Thursday for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. Each week we talk with you about the health issues that are facing your children. From acne to concussions to diaper rashes and tonsils, from potty training to allergies to braces, and everything in between. It's Mississippi's free weekly pediatric clinic on the radio. Listen to any of our episodes on demand through the MPB Public Radio app and online at mpbonline.org. Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, this morning at 11 on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Some Mississippi youth are exposed to heavy tobacco marketing ads in their communities. According to anti-tobacco advocates at the Truth Initiative, African-American communities are profiled with industry messaging. The advocacy organization is working to counteract the messages and to create more smoke-free spaces. They're looking to partner with students and administrators at historically black colleges and universities, other minority-serving academic institutions, and community colleges across the state to make campuses tobacco-free. They say a recent national poll has confirmed the public supports smoke and tobacco-free policies. The CVS Health Foundation is also on board as they offer technical assistance and grant funds to help cover costs. Cianti Stewart-Reed is vice president of campaigns for community youth engagement at Truth Initiative. Eileen Boone is president of the CVS Health Foundation. They tell us more. We know that big tobacco has a history of disproportionately targeting communities. When we think about like in African-American neighborhoods and places like Washington, D.C., there are 10 times the number of cigarette ads than in other neighborhoods. In low-income neighborhoods, there are more ads near schools. That is not a coincidence. It is profiling. And uh, we are calling that out and asking others to work with us to call it out because we know that this generation can be the first to end smoking. How are African Americans being targeted in a specific matter for them? We see a disproportionate number of advertisements in African American communities than in other communities. We see 12% of African American young adults who are smokers. And so we have a a history of targeting practices by Big Tobacco that focus on African-American communities, low-income communities, uh, LGBTQ individuals, and individuals with mental health illnesses. So it's not a coincidence that that that's who they're targeting. It is profiling. You are in a shared initiative to get HBCUs across the country to go tobacco-free. How are you doing that? What's your process? Between the Truth Initiative and CVS Health Foundation, we have created this grant program for colleges and universities to apply for grants to help them go tobacco-free. So the website is truthinitiative.org, where they can go and find more information on the college campus process. And there's a very robust 
hands-on process, which Truth Initiative goes through, to really help those schools become tobacco-free. And it's a process of not only helping to identify and inspire these kids to really stand up and reject tobacco, but help those that are that are smoking to quit, as well as helping those that never have never start. You gave a statistic of 12%. How does that compare to other races? Smoking for youth is at 6%, so that's about double. Because African Americans are being targeted by the tobacco companies, is it a direct correlation to the number of those who take up smoking? Can you see that correlation? Do you have evidence to that? What we do know is that the tobacco companies are advertising, they're spending $1.9 billion on advertising every year in the, across the country. And then in some places you're seeing disproportionately higher numbers um, of advertising. And uh, Eileen mentioned that 6% of youth in the country smoke, but those numbers are higher in communities that have more advertising like African-American youth. And so what we do is we empower young people with the truth, with the facts, and we let them make their own decisions. And that is a part of what this college program does. We empower young people on historically black colleges and universities at community colleges and other minority-serving institutions um, to learn more about what it means to be tobacco-free and adopt a policy on their campus. Are you doing this at all of the HBCUs in Mississippi? We've been working with 45 of the 102 HBCUs in the country, several of them in Mississippi. But I just want to be really clear, this project is open to more than just HBCUs. Grants are available for minority-serving institutions, so if the college is predominantly black, they would be eligible. Um, We're working with community colleges and HBCUs. The average smoking rate for ages 18 to 24 is 25, 26 percent, and Mississippi's higher. It's about 52 percent higher than that. How has the reception been from the colleges and universities to this program? We've gotten great reception from these colleges and universities, mostly because Truth has been so wonderful at spending time with them, really giving them day-to-day support and wraparound services to really get what they want to achieve, which is tobacco-free campuses. Is it up to the colleges uh, who receive these grants to determine how best to use it, how best to educate? Since 2005, we've been working on this program, and in that time, we've sort of worked out a five-step process um, where we work with the campus administrators to form a task force, survey their campus, and really understand what their unique needs are. And so we want the program that's implemented on campus to speak to that university. We work hand-in-hand with them to develop and implement it and to work with their students to make sure that the young people on the campus are engaged. So each program is is unique, but we sort of know there are five core elements that you need to to do this work well. And they can find more about it at truthinitiative.org. Sianti Stewart-Reed is the Vice President of Campaigns, Community Youth Engagement at Truth Initiative. And Eileen Boone has a number of titles, but we'll say she's president of the CVS Foundation. Thank you both so very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Southwest Mississippi, Meridian, and Holmes Community Colleges are three of Mississippi's junior colleges working with Truth Truth Initiative. Jackson State University is also participating. Currently, less than half of the nation's 102 HBCUs are tobacco-free. 
Coming up, if you've ever wondered about the life of an undercover agent, hear a firsthand account from author and agent Tamar El Nuri in our book club segment. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. Here's a great tip to clear the clutter going into the holidays. If you've got an extra car you no longer need, or if you recently upgraded your car and don't want the hassle of selling your old one, we have a solution. You can donate it to MPB. You can submit your donation up until midnight December 31st to qualify for a tax deduction. And if that car's gotten too expensive to repair just to get it there, well, come pick it up. Go by mpbonline.org and donate your car, truck, boat, RV, or motorcycle to MPB. This is Mississippi Edition. Mississippians curious about the dangerous life of agents with the FBI can get an inside scoop in an explosive memoir written by Tamar El Nouri. In his book, American Radical, Inside the World of an Undercover Muslim FBI Agent, El Nouri reveals some of his experiences living and working with terrorists and extremist groups. The longtime undercover agent joined a counterterrorism unit after September 11th. El Nouri, who is Muslim, lives and writes under a pseudonym and uses technology to distort his voice. He tells us how he works to keep Americans safe. As you are well aware, 9-11 was personal to us as a nation. It was devastating to all of us, but it was personal to me on yet another level because the terrorists were all Arab Muslims and doing it in the name of something that I held so personal and dear my whole life. How long did this particular operation go on? Over what period of time? I was on target for a little over 10 months, but the investigation was significantly longer between the planning and the after investigation. Explain how you meet up with, I don't know, a terrorist, maybe too general a term, but someone that is planning something violent against innocent people. In an ideal situation, as I point out in American Radical, I have a little extra time to study that particular subject pattern of life, what he does 24-7 when he's not, as I say, being jihadi. What is his personal life like? What does he do? Who does he talk to? Where does he go? Where does he eat dinner? What does he do on Saturday nights? These are the things I ask myself and when I have an accurate pattern of life and I can figure out the best way to insert me into that life, that's how I go about doing it and crafting my legend and my backstory to fit myself into his world. Your adrenaline must always be on overdrive. It seems repeatedly in this book, you have to look where the exit is as soon as you enter a room. You have to wonder who's behind the door. You have to wonder if you can take that drink that someone's given you. How do you deal with that on a daily basis? Well, it's it's really no different than the adrenaline rush that our men and women serving in the military or in law enforcement in uniform throughout the country. It's just slightly different. They go in and they approach threats head on. I can make the argument that they're more, much more brave than I am. I sneak in through the back door. So I put my arm around them. I convince them that I'm their friend. And I take their temperature, as I call it, to gauge the threat level to our citizens. Does this book out you in any way? Your name is not your name. But you list events and circumstances that are very specific. Yeah, that's a great question. As of right now, no. And I hope and pray that 
the answer is still no if you ask me in a few months. <laughs> Did you have to get permission to write the book? Did someone have to look at the book? Of course. And Karen, I'm still on a job, so I wasn't looking uh, to hurt anyone. I'm not revealing anything that's going to put anyone in danger other than maybe myself. But that's how strongly I feel about this message. I wanted to do it to the letter of the law. I made sure I dotted every I and crossed every T. I had the FBI review and approve it before my publisher even got their hands on it. Once the manuscript was approved, that is when we were able to release it to the world. And I think this message is too important for Americans to not read it and understand the vast differences between the radical mindset and mainstream Islam. And if we're going to be armed with knowing these vast differences and understanding these terrorism indicators, it shouldn't just be for law enforcement and the intelligence community. I think every citizen should understand these differences. Tamar, have you been the target of racism yourself? Of course I have. And I understand it. It's human nature to fear what you don't understand. And I'm hoping uh, in this book that uh, I can dispel a lot of these myths uh, so that Al-Qaeda and ISIS are not the only ones with a voice anymore, Karen. Are you still out in the field while this book is coming out and you're doing interviews? I am still working. Uh, I'm wearing a different hat now, Karen. So uh, I'm not quite on target but I'm more behind the scenes at this point, but I'm proud of the fact that I'm still in the fight. Will you go back into the forefront, or is this the position you will remain in? I'm hoping that I will. Let me ask you finally, does this scare you? Uh, the fact that I'm writing a book? No, the fact, well, every day, the fact that you your identity could be revealed, that you're putting yourself in danger. Yeah, I mean, I'm less scared when I'm working, if that uh, helps to clarify anything. When I'm in my element and I'm undercover or I'm in alias, um, I'm in a much more comfortable state of mind. Right now with the book and the media coverage and everything that's happening, and uh, yeah, that's that's got me more nervous and in a much different way.